Welcome to episode 9 of the Self-Care 101 podcast, where we talk about work-life balance, mental health and mindset. Thank you so much for listening today. On this episode, we're going to talk to my dear friend Mel, who just a few years ago experienced a major life-threatening event which made her change the way she chooses to live. Being inspired by a friend's strength is something to behold. When someone close to you battles with life-threatening events, it's important for us to understand how difficult that process was and how they were able to come out the other side, not unscathed, but instead more informed and resilient to what life brings us. In this episode, I get to interview my friend Mel, who experienced an intense life event that has shaken up her entire outlook on life. It's a story of strength, resilience and motivation to continue to live life well. I've known Mel for over 10 years. We've laughed, we've danced, we've drank a lot of Riesling, we've cried, we've broken up and we've come back together again because when a friendship is real, it's important to love again. Mel's just recently come back from a sabbatical that was only supposed to be for a few months, which actually ended up being for a whole year. And get this, she was in Bali. Now that's a dream for most of us, right? But it wasn't necessarily what she thought it would be. Yet on the other hand, it was everything and more. Mel's a strong-willed chatterbox. She's going to kill me for that. (laughs) Our spirits align because we just don't quit, ever. It's definitely the strongest bond we have as friends, as well as the non-judgment we give each other in our friendship. Now, I've had my fair share of life's rubbish moments, but never with my health to the extent that Mel has. Unfortunately, I was battling with my depression when this happened to her, so I wasn't able to be the friend that she needed. I now pledge a lifetime to being her supportive friend whilst I'm able to. She's an inspiration to me and I'm sure to many, many others. I've invited her to this podcast to share her incredible journey and how through it all, she managed to stay on top of her mental health, which could have so easily flailed in the midst of all that she went through. So let's get to it. Hi, Mel. Hi, Pooch. Thank you for what a fantastic introduction that was. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) You're going to make me a ball of mush at the start. (laughs) Oh, bless. Well, I just wanted to thank you so much for doing this because I think it's been a really inspirational journey that you've been on. And I don't know how many times you've heard that from people or anything like that, but I, I kind of felt like giving you this platform might be really good to help other people who might be thinking about, you know, like going away and just packing up life and starting again somewhere, you know, what it's really all about because it's not necessarily what we think it might be right it's not like a two-week holiday Mm-mm. very different <laughs> in all the good ways and all the struggle ways as well <laughs> <laughs> okay so I've just given a little intro about your journey but I haven't given the details so could you please share with the listeners that life-threatening event that you went through sure yes and it was I mean definitely when doctors tell you that you have a very rare and huge cyst within your spleen, which is part of your immune system, that's basically threatening your life because it could rupture at any point. It takes a huge toll on everything to do with life. And it was a very complicated surgery and lots of tears and sweat on my mom's face, but eventually came out the other side. And what it was is your spleen should be the size of a kiwi fruit, roughly. And mine was the size of a grapefruit. It had 
for some reason, grown this perfectly enclosed cyst in there. But we didn't know until after the surgery whether it was cancer, whether there was anything more sinister, whether I'd need ongoing treatment for life. But I was, I consider myself one of the lucky ones. And though I don't have a spleen now, I came out the other side and I'm all the cliches now, honestly. There's just no way that you can't be when you sort of go into a surgery not knowing whether you'll come out the other side. Yeah what you'll come out looking like and what your life will be like. I think there was a huge amount of mental preparation for that in the short time that I had to do that as well. And that very much helped the journey. And I think you and I have had these conversations about when you fix your mental attitude on something, whether it's going to be you're a victim of your illness or you're going to nail it to the wall, it helps the process. And I was thinking actually the other day, I used to go into every single one of my doctor's appointments dressed in my best clothes. And it sounds so silly, but I was I was absolutely going to kill this thing. Whatever it was, was not going to beat me. So I would turn up in my best to all my appointments, knowing that I'd have to take my tops off and people would poke me and prod me, but I got my good boots on. <laughs> <laughs> How did you realize that you needed to have this surgery on your spleen? Like, was there pain or what, what happened? I was very sick, I would say, for about two years. It was gradually getting worse. I had a lot, a lot of abdomen pain, mystery pains, and I struggled. By the end of when they finally got to diagnosing me, basically I had to change my doctor because my little doctor just wasn't listening, wasn't doing anything in particular, no scans whatsoever. So that frustration when I finally got scanned and their faces was like, oh, oh, and that's just not what you want. But I kind of, I think I knew at that point that something was quite seriously wrong. I just wanted to get on the other side of it and feel well again. So you could have told me it was anything at this point. You could have said it's cancer, it's whatever, all of your stomach pains, all of these things now make sense. You're not going crazy. Um, But there was a lot, yeah, there was a lot of working from home, struggling to get out of bed, just pains that they couldn't identify. So it was a long process to diagnosis for sure, but and I had to fight the good old NHS quite a lot, but I'm so thankful for them. <laughs> wow. Okay. So well, what made you go to Bali, really? I think that's probably what everyone wants to know. How did you get to Bali? Uh, lying in a hospital bed for two weeks on a lot of drugs. I'm not going to say it was a hallucination, but it was probably <laughs> close. <laughs> I think it was one of the lovely nurses who just, they keep your spirits up. She came around one day to take my blood pressure and everything. And she just patted my hand and said to me, oh, it's a shame, you know, all the places that you won't be able to go in the world now. And I just looked at her and said, I'm sorry, what now? And she said, oh, yeah, you know, your immune system is now compromised with that spleen. So that does mean there's a lot of the world you won't see. You know, anywhere that carries malaria, um, you don't have the immune system to cope with that so you most likely won't take the risk to travel there and she walked away and there was in my mind a map of the world all lit up and certain countries just went dark and I had a very very sad and depressed 24 hours of just sitting there thinking I wished I'd done this I wished I'd done that I wished I'd seen this place I wished I'd gone to India and and I sort of wake up the next day and it's not really in my character to think about the bad stuff and focus on it I've always been quite what's ahead what's the next thing let's look forward and I just took the attitude of well I'm gonna create a living list then it's not a bucket list I'm not dying Mm -hmm. but I'm going to create a list of all the things I haven't done 
I mean, it was simple stuff, ballet, opera. How had I never been? I'm a grown-up. Um, to all the countries that I could visit. I like that, a living list, the things that you want to live to do. Because I do, I think the connotations of the bucket list tend to be for, you know, grandpas, old people, that kind of, you know, the sort of end of life list, right? But you're, you know, you're 30 odd, right? And you're, you're still living. So a living list, I like that. I might steal that for my practice. Thank you. You can have that. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was just you hit life refresh when something like that happens. And I mean, because of what she said, I sort of thought places like Bali and, you know, Southeast Asia were off the table. And I did have to do a lot of digging around and speak to some specialists at the Hospital for Tropical Diseases in London, who are amazing, who finally knew they'd seen my case. So they knew my lack of immunity. Mm-hmm. And they also knew very well tropical diseases globally. And when I said to them, right, I'm thinking of going Jamaica, Bali, here, there, where can I actually go? And to my surprise, the first thing the lady turned around and it's a teaching hospital. So she had two students in there. She said, you should go to Bali. And I said, but can I go to Bali? (laughs) I should, but can I? And she said, absolutely. Get your jabs, get everything. The malaria rate is practically non-existent. You're safe to travel. And then we just got into this whole big conversation about you're more likely to get into a scooter accident than catch malaria in Bali. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. So it sowed the seed and I took a leap and the following, I think that was in the end of, I think that was in autumn and the following spring, I booked a flight, 16 day solo trip to Bali to go and experience it and to do, you know, solo travel because I hadn't ever really done that apart from business trips frequently in my 20s. And I got on a plane and I got to Bali and I completely fell in love with it and it just thought it was it's idyllic. It's great. It's beautiful. People are kind. And I was like, right. I came back and I said, that's not long enough. I need to figure out a way to go for at least a month. And it took a couple of years. And then I just saved and I'd been in my job for five years. And I asked them for a sabbatical and they said, yes. <laughs> Crazy <laughs> people. Very lucky. Gosh. Wow. Yeah. And that, that was kind of the catalyst to it is where can I go rather than let's not think about all the places I can't go. Let's have something to focus on and look forward to. And I used to drag people traveling with me as well, like little places in Europe. I think I saw nine countries in two years after that surgery. What did you say? Nine countries in two years? Yeah. All with annual leave. Very cleverly done. (laughs) All with annual leave. I I need these notes. How how you did that. That's crazy. I know. Um, I think the trips were about £250 maximum each. So it was weekend trips off season and things like that. I honestly, I was determined and... I got, I sort of spread the travel bug and the living list bug around my friends. And I thought that was so great as well, because you shouldn't have to wait till something awful happens to just get on that train and create your own list and get out there and do these things. Yeah, I like that. You shouldn't have to wait for something awful to happen. I mean, you know, we need these stories as well to help us realize sometimes to stop in that rat race, right? We're always in that doing, doing, doing state. And we don't necessarily take stock. And when we do take a trip, it's usually, I need a break. And you just want to mong out on the beach somewhere with pina coladas in hand, you know, and really have nothing to think about. But the beauty of a living list is just part of your life, isn't it? It's just every couple of months, this is what I do. I think it's just so admirable that you did that. (laughs) Or just a group, you know, a group on every month, do something new. 
or do something that gives you something to look forward to. And it can be really small. It could be like, I've been meaning to go to that gallery. I'll go to that gallery this weekend. And it's just little, it can be little stuff or it could be walk the Great Wall of China, but put it on there and practice it. And, you know, attitude of gratitude and everything makes a huge difference to your daily life. When you know you've got something to look forward to and you count all the things that you do have, that that was a huge part of the process as well, was counting every day what I had and waking up and saying, I have more than enough. I'm completely surrounded by love and support. There's a roof over my head. There's food in my belly. I'm not running 90 miles an hour like I used to. I had a massive career and this just stopped it in its tracks and it reset everything. When you say that, you know, that attitude of gratitude, how did you, if you weren't doing it before, how did you believe that? Because I know with clients, when I tell them to do gratitude journals and stuff, there's they'll do it, but they don't necessarily believe what they're writing down. So yes, I've got my health. Yes, I've got family. <laughs> yes, I've got this. Do you know what I mean? Like you've got, these are all things that we take for granted, right? So you don't actually fathom them until something bad happens, right? And then you kind of think, oh, right, I need to value everything in my life. So how did you get to believing that? Was it the, without putting words into your mouth, but was it the event with the spleen that caused you to really believe and take stock? Or do you feel like it was something that was always with you? It was actually something that has always been a small bit of my life, I would say, because so in my past, I've done lots of stuff with like underprivileged young people, whether it's mentoring, um, guest lecturing on their courses and then staying in touch with some of the kids. And to this day, still do change your perspective is one of the biggest things. We all live in a bubble massively. If you really want to understand how much you have, be around people who don't have it. And I used to volunteer at food banks and, like I said, mentor young people. And it is that you just get this complete contrast. And I think because of that, I've had that sort of practice of I'm so blessed, I'm so lucky, I'm so appreciative. But this kicked it up a gear big time, for sure. I've been queen of reading all the self-help books <laughs> all my life. So I'm there is an awareness already there of these sorts of things. But I think obviously a huge life event will just trigger that. Oh, dear God, I'm alive. And thank goodness I am. And wow. And, you know, you have to check yourself every now and then because our whole lives, especially in a city like London or any large city, is almost driven by ego. It's me. I'm so busy. I'm so important. I don't have time. I've got this. I've got that. You forget to check in on people. You forget to appreciate what you do have. And it is a daily practice, but it's, you need a reason to believe it. And sometimes maybe it's just the contrast. So get out there and do some volunteering, be around people who don't have it, talk to people who share their stories. And, you know, obviously with the hospital process is, I get to get up and walk away eventually. And some of the people that I was around don't. And that's very, very contrast heavy. And that was a huge catalyst for the gratitude. Mm. It's interesting, actually, that you said um, about relationships, like, you know, checking with people and things like that. Because I, you know, personally, I know how difficult that can be. Mm. And I was, I'd actually interviewed Dwayne, my husband, for anyone who doesn't know, on another episode. And it was funny that he brought up relationships being key. So whenever he has extra time, so like at the moment he drives to work, but if he does get the train to work, that's extra time that he didn't have before. And he always uses that to check in with 
friends and family. And it's kind of like his way of keeping connected to what is important to him. And I just thought it was interesting that you brought up relationships as well. I thought that, yeah, interesting. Well, it's, I think, lying in my little hospital bed and seeing, you know, these people turn out for me and, you know, odd visiting hours, awkward, but they would come and see me. And they, that support system and that community, it's absolutely everything. It lifts you up. It holds you together. And I think I realized that I, I'm so surprised that half of my friends, after being a complete workaholic through my 20s, I was so surprised at how much love and support was around me. And I genuinely felt pretty bad about perhaps I've not invested in them enough. And that was one of my priorities coming out of hospital was I want to make sure that I invest in those friendships and give back for everything that they've done for me and make that a priority as much as my work schedule is a priority. Personal relationships, friendships, family are so important. That's what keeps you together, you know, when you have bad days, when you have good days. You have people to celebrate with, you have people to cry with, and it's all the same, and they need your love and support right back. It's a two-way street. So since you've been doing that, since you've been more conscious about your relationships, how's that made you feel wonderful it's brilliant honestly it's I don't get it right all the time because we're all human but the I don't know it, it just it's a deeper connection it's definitely some people have fallen by the wayside not every friendship will stay and that's what's also been quite interesting is you almost have a little mini grief episode when you realize that you've outgrown friends or you're just not the same people anymore and you drift apart and no matter what you do, you can't stick those relationships back together. So you sort of get a lot of clarity eventually, but they've flourished and it is, my life is healthier for having that. And that is what we're all trying to achieve is balance. And that's a constantly moving thing, Yeah, but it's worth, it's worth remembering to invest in that as much as you invest in yourself and your work as you need to invest in the people around you like they do for you I wanted to talk a little bit more let's get back to paradise for a minute <laughs> <laughs> now you know jokingly I say let's get back to paradise but I know you and I have spoken a little bit about this but it wasn't necessarily the paradise that I guess you thought it was going to be or that the time that you were going to be away there was some moments that maybe you weren't expecting to experience would you mind talking a little bit about that sure lots of ugly crying in the shower um (laughs) that kind of stuff yeah (laughs) when I started I was on a four-month sabbatical and halfway through that sabbatical I quit my job my flat everything I had to ask a friend in London to move me out of my flat because I wasn't even coming home my mum wasn't happy because I wasn't coming home for Christmas and just as I was doing that my best friend our mutual friend I knew that she'd been trying for a baby for quite some time and I've been best friends for 20 years. And then when she told me in the same phone call where I said, I'm not coming home, I don't know when I'm coming home. She said, I'm pregnant. (laughs) And it was just this pure moment of joy. And we spoke and it was happy tears. And I got off the phone and I bawled my eyes out. I've been there for 20 years and I was going to miss the entire pregnancy and the newborn baby. And that was just one of those things you think it's a huge sacrifice so that was one of those moments the other is when you kind of decide to set up roots somewhere Bali is 
it's, it's beautiful. It's kind. It's generous. It's a wonderful island. It's full of inspiring people doing remote work and, you know, living their little remote lives. But they also move on. They leave. They pass through. They might be there for two weeks, four weeks, a month, three months. But eventually people leave and, you know, they go to set up base in another country. So the transient nature of it in the beginning was all fun and exciting and great. And I had my little routine and my little guest house where I was living and my scooter and my yoga and my good food. And then friends started leaving and it just it's brutal. And also romantically people leave so it became very very difficult as well when you're seven hours ahead of everybody at home the support network that you know and love is so far away so far away and you don't want to call them crying because they think you're in paradise (laughs) so it's quite difficult to be like I'm having a really bad day that was tough that was for sure quite difficult and yeah there was plenty of stumbling blocks like if something happened to me health-wise that would be a sheer panic but thank goodness nothing did while I was away but a lot of it I think mentally the strain of people coming and going and friendships that I'd built quite quickly because you do build them very quickly when you're away there's just no boundaries no barriers people want the connection because they're away from home so it's beautiful in that respect yeah because it's quite hard to make friends now as an adult right in London I think that's something that quite a few 30 odd year olds have been telling me that it's quite hard to make friends so you know traveling like that has it that's a great bonus right Absolutely. It's probably the most open type of people that I've met anywhere is when you set a base and you see people sort of doing the same thing. Immediately, you might be sitting in a little cafe, just working with a coffee for a couple of hours. And someone says, just pops the headphones out and goes, oh, is the Wi-Fi down or is it working for you? And, oh, where are you from? Boom. Chat, conversation. We're going to watch Sunset later. Would you like to come? It's that easy and relaxed in a way that you know, London and cities just aren't. People yeah. are like, why are you talking to me? Don't be a weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, because we all see connection, you, you kind of flourish in this, oh, loads and loads of connections and it's super easy. But when they leave, it's doubly as hard because that becomes your support system and your community and they kept leaving and I kept going, oh, okay, great. Can I carry on doing this? Well, I thought I was supposed to because I thought I was really happy here. Um, And it is a beautiful lifestyle. Do not get me wrong. Balinese people are the kindest people I've ever met. Their entire culture is based in gratitude for everything. And they will help you. They will smile at you. It's just the nicest culture. So kindness is just kind of by osmosis sinks into you. (laughs) I love that. I'm going to have to do my next retreat in Bali then. Oh, yeah, please do. (laughs) I will come. (laughs) Um, but no, that, so that a lot of it was quite difficult. You know, you're constantly moving, you're trying to settle down and it's a lot of extreme highs and lows is, is what mm. I'm getting from you about, you know, you, you guys, everyone's there and, you know, everyone's looking to make connections and you do these amazing sunsets together with absolute strangers, but you're connected on each other's journey, obviously. And then they go. And that's grief, isn't it? So you have that whole grieving process and as you might get really close, like, okay, yeah, it's a lover, you could get close to them, but also friendships, you know, girlfriendships and stuff like that. You, It's going to feel like you're grieving a whole relationship that you've had for years because mm. you're relying on it so much. 
Yes, that is exactly what it was like. And then add to that any business struggles as you launch a business, which is what I did while I was out there. And when the business stuff starts to go wrong or has a very, very stressful period, it's even more heightened. There's no other support system. You have to earn money. You have a limited way to earn money. And when that starts getting problematic as it does in any new business, that swing is just awful and terrifying. And you self-doubt, you go into all of these things. And I think because I've had a sort of a history of um, anxiety episodes, this all kicked that back up to a mega degree. It was like all of the things that you know, London does, you're busy, you don't have time to think. And da, 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 da. You actually spend a lot of time in London shoving stuff under the mental carpet because you just don't have the time. And then when you get to somewhere like Bali and you don't need to work 40 hours a week, you maybe work 20, delightful life, yes. All of the other stuff that's been sitting under the carpet just comes up because it has the space and the room to breathe and, and you know, tap you on the shoulder and go, hey, you've got some stuff you need to deal with and it's right here <laughs> and and it fully comes up in your face and you're like I'm in paradise I should be happy what's wrong with me why why won't I and it is very confusing <laughs> so with the anxiety what were your triggers my anxiety has always been triggered by emotional stress so and it started coming up in Bali because people were leaving and that sort of loss of loss of friends it was a very familiar pattern and it's happened a lot in in my past and it is usually triggered by relationships or emotional stress from friends family so it was quite familiar but it also floored me because out there you have to find a different way to cope because you're very very far from all support systems and I just dig a little deeper on that when you say from your past, that include what happened to you in your childhood. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a, it definitely comes from a place of people leaving, which ironically, I go to Bali and it does all the same thing, but it, it comes from that place in my childhood from, you know, I come from a, from divorced parents who were, I was very, very, very young when that happened. So my anxiety is rooted in people not staying and the fear of people leaving and just building up this barrage of kind of emotional overload to do with that. So a lot of the fear of being alone and fear of not having any stability with the people around me. Do you recognise your behaviours of that through your relationships? Yes, uh, I would say it's getting a little bit better. It's a life's work in progress mm -hmm. and there's a lot of sort of CBT and NLP that still needs to happen and there is plenty more work to do. But recognising the patterns and having the coping mechanisms in place is what sort of keeps me stable. Uh, okay. It's got much better over the years for sure, but it still does come back out when things so I know what's going to trigger it but it doesn't mean I can stop the trigger it tends to happen like I had a full-blown panic attack flying back from a week in Sydney I was in the airport and at, flying back to Bali and absolutely just had the worst panic attack I've had in about 10 years in the airport and it was awful luckily for me I flew back to Bali right into the arms of my Bali best friend and she was just helping me through it for a couple of days 
<laughs> so what are your coping mechanisms then? So when you get, when you go through anxiety event, episode or attack, how do you bring yourself back to centre, if you like? A few things. So in the very basic of it is talking, talking it out or journaling it out. If it's something I don't want to talk to anyone about, I will go into journaling all the bad stuff, what I'm feeling, why it's hard. And then I'll move that on to gratitude journaling. So write down all the things that are going on that are uncomfortable. And then I write a big list of things that I'm grateful for and what is good. And then I do a little mantra with myself. And it could be, depends on the given day, but it could just be putting my hand on my chest and saying, I'm okay, I'm safe, I'm loved. Or it could be, don't worry, you're going to go kick some ass. You've got this, <laughs> nail it to the wall, whatever the mantra needs on any given day. One for me is exercise and breath and movement. And I've always had, I don't love running, but I love running when I'm stressed because it really clears my head and just gets all the aggravation because anxiety can be a very twitchy thing where I feel like I want to crawl out of my own skin I just tell myself, all right, move the skin then. And it's a kind of distraction, but also quite therapeutic for me. And yoga has always through the years been one of the most meditative processes to help the anxiety, whether it's a restorative slow yoga or it's a full on dynamic hot yoga. It's turning into your body and turning off the mind without actually trying it just happens through the process because it's hard and that's all you can think about is moving your body and breathing and the breath work through yoga has been something I carry with me every day and allows me to kind of calm down my nervous system through breathing so those are the biggest things and you know sometimes if I can't do that I just tidy and then I call a friend Yeah, yeah. Tidying is very therapeutic. I'm <laughs> definitely one of those people. Mm-hmm. But as you know, I keep a very tidy home. So. It's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that, because I know that's tough. And even as friends, we don't necessarily go that deep, right, on anxiety and, and mental health stuff. So I really appreciate that. It's okay. We need to talk about it more to make it less stigmatized and to make it something that opens conversation for a lot more people. For sure. For sure. Okay. So let's see what's happening now with you, honey. (laughs) (laughs) How do you, like, I mean, that was a massive story, right? You went through a massive experience with your spleen and then barley and friendships and grief and the anxiety. I mean, so much has happened to you in such a short space of time, right? And you're still you know, mm-hmm. the best years of your life too. How mm-hmm. do you now approach or, yeah, how do you now approach your life goals? Like, what's your process now? I had this thing when I moved away and, you know, because people were questioning, well, how long are you in Bali for? How long are you away for? And I got so annoyed with the questions because at that point I didn't necessarily see my life being A to B to C, go to college get a degree, get a job, buy a house, get married. I never felt that path. And it started coming back when people were asking how long I was away or what I was doing or what's the plan. And I got so frustrated that my response was until it doesn't feel good anymore. And then I change it. (laughs) And I think actually that's quite a wise little say, little kind of mantra to have because there is a plan, obviously, but the plan is based on 
what I value and my values have changed tremendously. It used to be career driven, mega ambitious, do everything, be the youngest person to do this in the music industry, that in the budget. And there wasn't a lot of space left for the really simple feel good things. And now my values are on balance, on being healthy, being with my friends and family, building a community of people like me so that we have people to relate to who work freelance, remotely, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. That community of people doing the same thing were the reason I even launched a business as a virtual assistant while I was in Bali, because the community lifted me up and inspired me. And I came back and I was trying to find people. So the values now are loved ones, balance, health, and the community. And if it's not in that, it sort of doesn't resonate. It's not happy. It's not where I want to be. So that it's not that I have set five-year plan. I want to buy a three-bedroom house and I want to have this car. and da, da, da. It's those things will come along, but they're a sub part of the plan, I would say. Yeah, those are because they're attributed to finance. They're financial goals. Mm. They're goals based on how much money you earn. So therefore, if you want that three bedroom house, you know, you need to earn X amount of money and save X amount in order to get it. So it's a very different goal to how you live your life. And I think, I think what you say is really, really interesting and hits the nail on the head for a lot of the, my own mantras with my clients about how, once you know what your values are and you lead through your values, you can start to understand what is working for you and what's not working for you. Because if you never wanted to be a six figure salaried earning person, but you are, what's it all for? You know, how many cars can you buy? How many houses can you buy? I mean, okay, fine. You can buy loads of them, but if you're equating that money to your happiness, it's just never going to work because like you said at the beginning, you know, we, the city life is very much ego led and you, the value of what makes you happy gets lost within all of that. Absolutely. And, and also it's about who you're around because if other people around you, they have to have the newest Mercedes or they have a lovely polished flat and they're wearing the latest designer clothes and that's their values. You're going to feel like you don't match. Find your people whose values align with yours and that will keep you on a path to where you actually want to be. And because it's not by comparison, it's by almost complimentary that your friends and people you spend time with and invest are your tribe because their values are the same as yours. And that was a huge lesson for me, for sure. I like that. That's something that when I do my retreats, like I have a lot of potential clients come to me and they're like, oh, I don't know about this group coaching and stuff like that. And can't I just do one-on-one coaching with you? I'm like, yeah, of course, you can always do one-on-one coaching with me. But the value that you're going to get from meeting 10 other people who feel the same way you do, who've all got their own stuff going on, but can be your brand new tribe you know, using your word, their tribe, you're going to get so much more out of it than if you just did one-on-one coaching with me, that sort of gets bitty, you know, life gets in the way, it's an hour session, and then we see each other in a couple of weeks time. But when you're intensely with those people, like your experience in Bali, when you're intensely with those people, it kind of does smack you in the face to say, dude, your values, these are your values, this is what you value, this is what you thrive on, this is what's making you, you. And that having that support network, even though they're not your, you know, 20 year old friends sort of thing, there's still people who understand you 
and can give you the support that you currently need, right? Because it's that, isn't it? Yeah, no, no, it's you, you've nailed it. It's exactly that. And I do just wish it hadn't taken me so many years to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a beautiful thing when you simplify life and, you know, it's it's finding people who just let you be yourself and they don't judge you. And that is who you want to be around, you know, and you don't feel like you have to conform to certain things that aren't true to you anymore. So for sure, tribe and community is everything. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. You're supporting my uh, coaching practice. (laughs) All right, babe. Last question I want to know, because, Mm. you know, people do get this whole, like I'm, you know, I'm a number one the, the first person to tell you to go traveling, take time out, etc. But mm-hmm. I tell anyone to do it with some structure. Like, don't think it's going to be what it is when you go on holiday. It's a very different experience. Mm-hmm. So there might be people listening going, hmm, what are the flights like to Bali? <laughs> Next week or so. <laughs> um, but I think that there's some truths that happen, these kind of trips, these kind of life experiences that not everybody talks about Mm. so I wonder if if there is a truth or a wisdom about this life experience that you could share with the listeners that they may not be thinking could be something that would happen I think if you want different you have to be prepared to be scared and do it anyway it's Mm somewhat terrifying but utterly and completely rewarding in the end because you push yourself out of your comfort zones and that's where you learn and that's where you grow and for sure it's not always sunshine rainbows and coconuts (laughs) but you come back having learned so much about yourself and I mean with travel we you and I very much love the experience of different cultures and removing yourself from your daily life things are still going to be the same when you get back but you won't be and that's the point because then you can make changes grow from those experiences but if you want to break out of a rut or break out of the ordinary you have to find the courage to do so and we've all got that within us for sure courage is it's in us and you just have to take the chance to do it and I don't think you'll ever regret it Thank you, my good friend, Mel, for being here. I hope you enjoyed it. Loved it. (laughs) Love you so much. Thank you so much, babe. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I certainly did. It's weird being somebody who gets to interview their friends at this point, but I felt it really important with this podcast to actually interview real people to talk about their real journeys, because as much as we can be inspired by what celebrities do and what they've gone through, we've also got to remember that they've got more access to the resources that they would need to help them get better and to help them get through. Now, I know that that's not always the case. I mean, people like Amy Winehouse, for instance, but they do have the resources a lot more readily available than we do. And it's important to see what real people actually do to manage their lives, because so much of this is managing your own life, taking control and living the life that you want to live. And I love that Mel talks about creating a living list. I do something similar with my clients where I tell them to write a list of 50 things that they like doing in order to help them when they're in a you know, like a low mood and things are just, 
you just need to lift your spirits up but by doing things that you love doing so this living list I'm taking into my practice for sure (laughs) is one that I think is a really great takeaway I also thought it was really interesting that she talked about grieving over relationships and also recognising where that grief is rooted from, like the attachment that she has to people and relationships, because I know that it affects a lot of the relationships that she has had. But to be able to recognise where it's coming from is like the first step in her actually finding a way of managing this and managing the anxiety. I love that she was able to talk about her anxiety so openly with us, so I'm mega grateful for that. And I think it's interesting how she manages her episodes or events or triggers and understands that it's a constant state of balance because it is really, you know, as much as we'd like to overcome things, when they've been with us for so much of our lives, it's actually really difficult to just eradicate them. So understanding that managing it is probably the first step to healing from it completely, I think is just superb. And when she talked about relationships and community, I mean, you heard me sort of jump in here and there about how important relationships and community are. The aligning of yourself with people who have the same values, I mean, that really does allow you to thrive. And I found it super inspiring that she talked about that because obviously she had that in Bali, but she brought that with her when she came back to London and has been aligning herself with people who share the same values. So I thought it was a nice interview and I really hope that it was inspiring for you as well. Thank you so much again for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe to the Self Care 101 podcast. For more tips and tricks, head over to my website, franklycoaching.com, or for daily inspiration, you can follow me on the socials at franklycoaching. Talk to you soon.